think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anatoth, in the land of Benjamin. Hello. We are diving back in. Sorry if you were just, you know, if the dozen of you just couldn't live without last week's episode, but I was at a pumpkin patch having fun with my children, enjoying my life. So you just have to get over that. But we are back. The long national nightmare is over. <laughs> All right, got to have some fun. So what are we doing today? Well, I'm here to tell you that God is God, whether you believe it or not. We are dealing with the prophet Jeremiah. We have made our way through all the history. So always remember this about your prophetic books, that there is overlap with your historical books. So in other words, we're dealing with the time of Josiah, son of Ammon, until the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So somewhere after Josiah takes the, th- the, uh, the throne, which would have been 640, until well after Zedekiah is gone in 586 into the exile. So the dating numbers that I have is around 627 to 570. That's a long time. That overlaps the reigns of Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah, as well as the work of Nebuchadnezzar in basically destroying everything that was regular life in Israel. Well, at this point, Judah. So why do we care? Well, we care because this demonstrates a lot about who God is and how he deals with his people. We definitely care about that because, Christian, we are his people and nothing has changed. So if you didn't look at the title, we are going to bite off a chunk of Jeremiah today. We are going to dive into 45 chapters I have a lot of stuff written down here as my notes on stuff we want to get to. Hmm. I may have too much, but what I want to try to do <clears throat> excuse me, is make sure we get through this in such a way that we see the recurring themes, because there are recurring themes, things we need to be aware of as they come through. So chapter one begins with your preparation for Jeremiah's work and his calling as a prophet. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. And I said, alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, that should hearken you back. When you hear God commissioning someone to do the work and that person complaining about something and offering up an excuse, if I told you that was the story that we were inaugurating, you would probably look at me and say, yeah, that sounds like Moses. It does, and it's supposed to. This is a reminder. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to bang this drum as long as I have arms. If you want to understand the call of the prophets, you must understand the work of God in redemption. 
in the Old Testament, the work of God in redemption is demonstrated and clearly seen in the work of God in the Exodus. Hence, Jeremiah hearkens back to that work, just as Isaiah did also, by the way. When you see the the glory of God and the vision of the throne room of Isaiah 6, that's meant to hearken you back to God upon the mountain of Sinai, showing himself to Moses and the people beholding God in worship. These things are meant to connect. So, what's Jeremiah's message? Well, chapter 2, you've got a warning against apostasy in Judah. Gotta love this. What is there new under the sun? The answer is absolutely, positively, nothing. Not a stinking thing. Israel has been an apostate people since Exodus. God delivers them. They complain. God provides for them. They complain. God gives them this. They rebel. God redeems them. They go into apostasy. This was the, the uh, what's the word I was looking for? It just went right out of my head. This is the legacy of the period of the judges. The constant and, and I do mean constant apostasy of the people, the constant wandering away, as well as the constant salvific work of God. Always remember our foundations. We are accountable to him. If we do not walk rightly, he is Savior and Judge, and he is faithful to deliver all that he has promised. So chapter 3, Jeremiah points out the sin of Judah, their faithlessness. What's the call? Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. By the way, that is exactly what you think it is when you have scattered your favors to the strangers. Yes, that's husband language again. And have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you, and I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and will bring you to Zion. That's not a message of judgment. That's a message in the midst of judgment of God's mercy, grace, and redemption. This is the recurring theme you need to see in Jeremiah. This is why, this is why Jeremiah was hated as a prophet. It's one thing to just proclaim judgment and bang the drum. At least maybe then you could, um, maybe you could guilt some people, you know, a la Jonah, although Nineveh did repent. But maybe you could guilt into repentance some of the uh, people of Judah. But to constantly proclaim the judgment of God against sin, while also simultaneously proclaiming the mercy of God towards those who turn to him. In other words, grace in the midst of judgment. To do those two things is a surefire way in this world to get everyone to hate you. Christian, nothing's changed. This is why I want to accomplish I want to do. I don't want to be dependent. I don't want to be upheld by God. I want to be independent. I want to be the master of my own soul, the keeper of my own life. I don't want a savior because I don't want to judge, and one implies the other. I don't care that God has been faithful. I don't care that he is accomplishing his things. I want to be the one. That is the proclamation of sinful humanity. So when you point out that God is judge of sin, but also savior to those who trust him, they mock and scorn that because it's a reminder of the judgment and the dependency that they have. Something that they know that they wish to not acknowledge has been put, that has been thrust directly in front of them. <coughs> Excuse me. So, chapter 4. 
warning against wrath again. They're going to be judged. Chapter 5 brings judgment. I love chapter 5. You want to talk about the reminding of the work of God in the past? So Jeremiah is told, Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and look now and take note, and see in her open squares, if you can find a man, if there is one who does justice and, he, and who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. In other words, tell me what this sounds like, Christian. God is saying that if you go to the city and you can find just one person who's righteous, I won't destroy the city. See, the, the story you know goes, well, would there be 50? Would you destroy the city? And the answer is no. What if there were 40? The answer is no. What if there were 30? And the answer is no. What if there were 20? The answer is no. What if there were 10? For 10, I will not destroy. And how many righteous were there in Sodom and Gomorrah, Christian? The answer is none. None who sought after God. Jerusalem is being compared to Sodom here. Jerusalem is being exposed that God would pardon this city if there was one person in it. One who is righteous. One who is good. There aren't any. Because they all are dependent upon God and need to call upon him in mercy and in grace. So the messages continue. Chapters 6 and 7, warnings of destruction, judgment that are to come. Chapters 8 through 10, you want to talk about rapid fire time? You've got idolatry in this little section. It is declared how Judah has fallen into idolatry in chapter 8. It is lamented by God in chapter 9 how they have fallen into idolatry. And then chapter 10, it is mocked. It is mocked that they have fallen into idolatry. Similar to how Isaiah would mock idolatry, like you cut down a tree. Half of it you burn for your food and your warmth in your home, and the other half you bow down as a god. Well, what made that half of the tree you know, powerful and the other half refuge? The answer is nothing. Idolatry is, is dumb. What's the rule? That's right. Don't do dumb things. Idolatry is dumb because it makes you a fool, and every idol will crush you because it has no power. Chapter 11 is a reminder of the covenant. Hmm. Why do we need to be reminded of the covenant? Because this is not like God has just looked at this people and been like, I cannot believe you people. You know, I mean, you just won't listen, and I keep calling to you, and you don't listen to me. They had a responsibility. Your nation, your prosperity, your family, your crops, your flocks, your business, your livelihood was guaranteed and secured by God. Not the FDIC, but God secured your world. He didn't do that so that you could do whatever it was you thought was a good idea at the time. That's your Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? In other words, think about it. Let's say you got a house, and in this house you live. That would make sense. You got a house, right? And you have this person who has given you this home has built it, has secured it, and guards it 24-7. 24-7. You go out to work in the morning, he's standing there patrolling the perimeter. He greets you, he says hello, make sure you're dressed properly. And not only that, before you got in your car, he checked all the tires, he checked all the fluids, made sure your windshield wipers were good. If they weren't good, he replaced them. He did all of that. And this happens every day, day in and day out for years. 
And over the course of these years, you wake up each day, and as you go to work and you realize all this work that he has done for you, you just, as you walk by him, and as you get ready to leave, you spit on him, and then you go to work. And then you come home, and he's standing there guarding the property, and you spit on him some more. And you go inside, and you have your dinner, and next morning you go to work, and you spit on him. That's what Israel's doing. That's what's going on here. They are failing to recognize that this deity, that Yahweh has guarded and secured their nation. Now, how long would you expect that person who has given you this house to allow you to keep it? How long would you expect them to continue to care for your vehicle, to provide for your family, to do all of these things? The answer is you wouldn't. Not if I keep spitting on him. The patience of God on display. He is the preserver and is long-suffering. That's what idolatry is. It is a spitting on the provision and wonder that God has done. That's why the covenant is harkened back to. It's a reminder that this was supposed to be a two-way street, and really your way was just to trust and have faith in God. That's what all the commandments were about. You don't work on the Sabbath because you trust God to uphold your crops and your flocks. You don't make idols because that would be an insult against the God who has saved you. You don't take his name in vain because that would be dishonoring to the God who saved you. You honor your father and mother because they have taught you in the ways of God. Therefore, you learn respectfully and you treat them with respect and honor because of that great work. You don't murder because God is the author of life and you don't have that right. You don't steal because God is a provider of your stuff and you don't have that right. And on and on and on. That's what's going on here. And again... Notice the recurring thing. There's this complaint by Jeremiah that the people are unrighteous, and God answers. There's all this judgment. Thus says the Lord concerning all my wicked neighbors who strike at the inheritance with which I have endowed my people Israel. Behold, I am about to uproot them from their land and will uproot the house of Judah from among them. And it will come about that after I have uprooted them, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them back, each one of his inheritance, and each one to his land. Notice this. We talked about this with Isaiah. We talked about this with the minor prophets. In the midst of these warnings of judgment, there's still what? There's still mercy and grace. So chapter 13, this object lesson warning what? There's going to be judgment. There's going to be exile. The drought that comes is a warning against how God is going to deal with sin in chapter 14. Chapter 15, you get more warnings of judgment. Chapter 16, the problems that will come about because of this judgment, the stress that they will have. And yet, in the midst of chapter 16, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he banished them, for I will restore them to their own land, which I give to their fathers." Chapter 17 dives right back into judgment of sin and warning against God's wrath, or warning of the coming of God's wrath. Now, people don't like to read the prophetic books, and, and I get it. I mean, it's just, it's a beating. But I pointed this out in our reading plan, and I want to point it out here. There's a reason for it. There's a necessity here. This is also a bit of an object lesson for you, Christian. That as you read of all the judgment against sin, and as you read of all the faithlessness of humanity and God's people, in the midst of that, there are just these little pockets of goodness. These little reminders of the grace and mercy of God. That's instructive for you because, Christian, that's how you live day in and day out. 
You live amongst an unclean people. You, apart from the grace of God, are an unclean person. And the world doesn't rejoice in Christ. The world hates him on the whole. Therefore, you are celebrating and living your life celebrating little moments, little victories, little places where you have stood firm, little places where you have been reminded of the kingdom, little things where you have seen your children and your grandchildren grow in the grace of God, little celebrations of his goodness. In other words, in the midst of all of this judgment, I have these little pockets where I'm reminded of how great and good God is. Reading the prophets is literally how you live your life. Is you see all of this proclamation, and then just in the midst of it, in the, in the midst of all this dark destruction, there's this little gleam of hope, this little shining ray of God's mercy and grace. Christian, that is supposed to be how we live our life. So, 18 and 19, same things. A lesson about the, the uh, lessons. You've got the uh, potter and the clay, the broken jar, uh, object lessons, showing you what? That God will not bear with this forever. That the judge will come. Chapter 20, one of my favorite Bible chapters. I know I say that a lot, but one of my favorites because it's Jeremiah complaining. <laughs> and I'm, I'm here for that because that's what we do most of the time. I mean, I'm so weird that when they gave me a chance to preach for the very first time, Jeremiah 20 is what I preached from. Because, oh goodness, when was that? 2007, 2006, something like that. So, you know, even 15 years ago. I saw the applicability to the modern world, the, the recognition that life isn't what we would like. This place isn't what we would rejoice in, and yet God still works. God still accomplishes, just like those little nuggets we pull out of chapter 16. Jeremiah gets his complaint in, and yet he's reminding and celebrating that God has basically crushed him, and that's it. He gets it off his chest, and then he does what? Chapter 21, this is my, 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 mean, my favorite transition right here. Check this out. Go to the end of chapter 20. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Chapter 21, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent him to sent him Pashur, the son of Malchihah, and Zephaniah, the priest and the son of Masaiah, Masaiah saying, in other words, well, we ain't got time for that. You got that off your chest. You feel better. Now, what do we do? We get back to work. Christian, bear up under trial. Persevere in faith so that your hope is secure, so that your faith is strengthened, so that your obedience is displayed. In other words, complain. Complain to your heart's content, but complain while you get something done. Complain while you serve faithfully. That's what separates the believing complaint from the unbelieving complaint. When my complaining pulls me away from God, it is a recognition that I have fallen away. When my complaining pulls me closer to God, it is a recognition that I have understood and am following along rightly. That is the thing that I'm looking towards. That is the thing that I'm being reminded of in all of this. That's part of what is at work in this. So chapter 21 continues on with warnings. Chapter 22 does the same thing. Chapter 23, though, get a couple chapters of warning and complaining. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Notice the dual language, because God's going to send them into exile, and yet the shepherds are being blamed for scattering. Why? Well, the people are going to be sent into exile because they've been listening to the shepherds. 
the shepherds aren't doing the work right. Like, I myself will gather the remnants of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. In other words, it's a reminder of the Messiah. A reminder of that one that Isaiah was speaking about. I mean, go, go look at your charts again. The one that Isaiah was speaking about, um, I just lost my spot. I mean, at this point, upwards of a century ago. I mean, Isaiah's ministry is, what, 740-ish to early 680s? Jeremiah doesn't begin until 620s? So Jeremiah, Isaiah's ministry begins over 100 years before Jeremiah's ministry begins. And yet we have what? The same consistent message. We still have that one that Micah was talking about, the warning of the day of the Lord that Joel was mentioning. These things all connect. Chapter 24 gets the ball rolling. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the officials of Judah with the craftsmen and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me, behold, two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. Judgment is beginning. Nebuchadnezzar is doing his work. And yet Jeremiah is still what? Jeremiah is still doing his work. Jeremiah is still proclaiming all these things. <coughs> so what's going on here? We've moved all the way down to 597. God hasn't forgotten. God hasn't forsaken his people. It's almost like he's faithful to preserve them and uphold them, both for judgment and for salvation. It's almost like knowing who God is gives me a window and an understanding into how this world is supposed to work. So chapter 25, future captivity, and also the Babylonian judgment. And by that, I don't mean the judgment by Babylon. I mean a judgment upon Babylon. Just as the minor prophets mentioned, Jeremiah 2. Yes, Babylon will be the instrument of God's judgment on his people, but Babylon will not go unscathed because Babylon sins. Babylon does not honor God. They're not being chosen because they're good. They're specifically being chosen because they'll be violent and accomplish all that God would have them to do. So you get what? Chapters 26 through 28. There's a murder plot against Jeremiah. There is the praise of Nebuchadnezzar, and there's a rejection of the people. The rejection by the people of God. In other words, in the midst of this, even though the judgment has begun, they look around and go, no, no, we don't believe it. This is your fault. You did this. You keep prophesying these bad things, and these bad things keep happening. Yet, why is he prophesying the bad things again? Because you're no good, and you don't trust God. And yet, what are you demonstrating constantly? That you're no good, and you don't trust God. Chapter 29, the chapter everybody knows, even though they should, should not apply directly to their lives, is the message to the exiles. Chapters 30 through 31, though, in the midst of that, message of salvation. Message of what again? Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, chapter 31, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In other words, you broke the other one, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." In other words, what was broken about that covenant? The people were broken about that covenant. What's the cure? We need a better covenant? No. We need a better people. 
They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, and I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's what we were talking about on Sunday morning. Go listen to the sermon on Exodus 35. We don't need better laws. We don't need better actions. We need better people, which means we need clean and better hearts. And even in the midst of that promise, what do you get? Jeremiah's imprisoned. <laughs> Zedekiah, in the 10th year of Zedekiah, so you're getting near the end. It's 587-ish or so. Duh. The army of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard. They love this. We're still going to blame Jeremiah for our sin. We're still going to blame everything. And in the midst of this, this faithful prophet who's been doing this for 40 years, Restoration in chapter 33 is what's promised to the people. Not because they're good, but because God will redeem his people. God will be faithful to the promises that he has made. He will accomplish all that he has set out to do. So Zedekiah gets a warning, a prophecy against him. There's a message from the Rechabites and that their obedience against over and against Judah's disobedience is displayed in chapter 35. And the same thing happens. Chapter 36, you get this in Beautiful detailed. So Jeremiah is told to write a scroll and send it to the king, and the king gets it and burns it. <laughs> it's like, oh, this prophet of God sent me this message. Throw it in the fire. So what do we do? We do the exact same thing again. In other words, who's really stubborn here? While people are stubborn, God is more stubborn. And that's to our good, because he is the one who rules. He is the one who reigns. Therefore, he is the one who accomplishes. So again, Jeremiah warning the people. The people don't listen. They throw them in a pit. And just throw them in a pit. Why not? Well, the answer is because this is brokenness. This is what this looks like. So we're just going to keep mistreating Jeremiah because he has the audacity to point out what we don't like. Now do you understand why Jesus tells you, if the world hates you, know that it hated me? Woe to you, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and all those sent to her. This is what it looks like. Humanity doesn't want the message of salvation because they don't want the reminder of judgment because that reminds them that they are not the creator who is independent, but they are the creation that is dependent. So it happens. Jerusalem's taken. Nebuchadnezzar and the evil Babylonians treat Jeremiah with respect to the point that Jeremiah stays in Jerusalem so that he can report and prophesy on the things that are going along. The Seventh month, Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, Nathaniah, the son of Elishama of the royal family, and one of the chief officers of the king, along with ten men, came to Mizpah to Gedaliah, the son of Akkam, while they were eating bread together. In other words, Gedaliah, who's the governor, is going to be murdered. So the Babylonians, who have put somebody in charge, are now going to deal with further rebellion. <sighs> and thus begins the continued problems. So you have the rebellion. Because Jeremiah's message has been... Follow along. Do what the Babylonians are telling you. Why? Because this is judgment from God. Trust in God. Trust in his judgment. Recognize that he will see you through and stop warring against him. Trust what he is doing. Warnings against going to Egypt. People don't listen. Warnings against Egypt. People don't listen. Warning that Egypt will be conquered and destroyed. People don't listen. Excuse me. Message to Jeremiah's assistant. Is chapter 45 where we'll stop today. Why? Well, because he's looking at the destruction 
He's seeing the carnage, and he's recognizing that the life that I thought I was going to have isn't going to be there anymore. And that's okay, Christian. The world that I thought was going to be isn't going to be there anymore. And for Baruch, that was okay. Christian, it's okay for you too. You don't get to pick the times and the seasons. But by God's grace and his mercy, you do get to pick your faithfulness. You get to choose this day whom you will serve. You get to choose whether or not you will stand firm or whether or not you will bend the knee. Will we stand firm for God and bend the knee to him and reject the world or vice versa? What determines that is who you are, not on the outside, but who you are on the inside. And who you are on the inside is determined by the work of God. That's why the message is consistent. There's judgment. There's darkness. There's wrath. There's warnings. There's grace. There's judgment. There's darkness. There's wrath. There's warnings. There's mercy. There's judgment. There's darkness. There's wrath. There's warning. There's salvation in God on high. The world is not my home. His kingdom is my home. That's the message to Jerusalem and Judah in her sin. That's the message to the world today in its sin. And we rightly proclaim not because we're better, but because we see it. Because our minds have been renewed, because our hearts have been changed, because we know who God is and what he has done. That's what Jeremiah was calling the people to, and that's what they were rejecting. That's what the world today is rejecting. And the message to us is the same message to Jeremiah. It's the same message that we're going through as we work through the message to the seven churches in Revelation in our Wednesday Bible study. It's a message to the people of God to stand firm, remain faithful, be anchored, be rooted in Christ, built up for every good work unto him and him alone. So what have we learned here today, children? God will have a witness. In this case, it was Jeremiah. God's witness will stand firm, in this case, for decades, under threats and persecution and imprisonment and all that good stuff. And finally, God's will shall be accomplished because he is the one who does, the one who is and was and is to come. And none shall escape him because he is the one with power. So, questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. If there's something that we should be covering that we didn't cover, send it to us. We'd be glad to see it. Um, hopefully, this is a little useful and helpful and gets you thinking about your Bible in the right way, because that's kind of the goal, is to see the world rightly based on who God is as he has revealed himself in Scripture. So, along those lines, until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.